There's a Zen saying, and it goes, what we're really doing in spiritual life is sitting and sweeping the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. The idea being we are learning to pay attention, to bring a wise awareness into our moments, and those are moments when we're in formal training, and those are more moments throughout every part of our life. That means that today our practice was getting into the shower and washing dishes and driving cars and all the different complicated stuff we do at work. It's everything. There's a uh, pervasive universal law that's in the East called karma and the West it's called cause-effect and it goes pretty much like this, that how you do this moment affects other moments. There's many forces in this universe with cause-effect, but how our parents treated us affects how we treat our children, right? And how we treat ourselves. And the way we go through our life, the habits of thought and behavior that we had in the past affected how we related to today, ourselves, our life. And it's clear to most of us, especially the more we pay attention, how preoccupied we are, how much of our day rotates around this sense of self, and it's a busyness. It's a busyness to make sure things are okay so that we get things done, so we feel good about ourselves, so we don't blow it in some way. There's, um, some of you know, the Chinese syllable for the word busy has two parts. It's heart and then death are killing. That we're in this busy preoccupation around self and it closes down our heart. We're not quite as sensitive as we might be. From a New York newspaper, a woman fainted when a man offered her his seat on the subway. When she recovered, she thanked him and he fainted. might be changing though. Some of you might have noticed in this week's paper that in response to road rage there's a kind of a movement now of driver consideration. Good sign, good sign. So karma. Karma is not just an Eastern thing. Um, This is a story that's kind of a well-known Hindu story I'll read to you. Two kingdoms were um, each governed in the name of Krishna, Lord Krishna. And looking down from heaven, Lord Krishna decided to visit them and see what was being done in his name. So he went and appeared before the court of one king. This king was known to be wicked, cruel, miserly, and jealous. Lord Krishna appeared in his court in a blaze of celestial light. The king bowed to him and said, Lord Krishna, you've come to visit. And Krishna said, yes, I wish to give you a task. I would like you to travel throughout the provinces of your kingdom and see if you can find one person who is truly good. This king went out through all his provinces. He talked to high castes and lower castes, to priests and farmers, to artisans and healers. Finally, he came back to his throne room and waited for Lord Krishna to reappear. When Lord Krishna appeared, he bowed and said, My Lord, I've done your bidding. I've gone f- 
from low to high throughout my kingdom, but I have not found one truly good person. Though some of them perform many good deeds, when I got to know each person, even their best actions ended up being selfish, self-interested, conniving, or deluded. Not a single good person could I find. Then Lord Krishna went to the other court, ruled by a famous queen named Damaraja. This queen was known to be kind, gracious, loving, and generous. This story sounds a little sexist, doesn't it? (laughs) Here again, Lord Krishna set her to a task. I would like you to go throughout your kingdom and find one truly evil person for me. So Queen Damaraja went through her provinces, speaking to low castes and high castes, farmers, carpenters, nurses, and priests. After a long search, she returned to her court, whereupon Lord Krishna reappeared. She bowed and said, My Lord, I have done as you asked, but I have failed my task. I have gone throughout the land, and I have seen many people who act unskillfully, who are misguided, and act in ways that create suffering. Yet when I really listened, not one truly evil person could I find, only those who are misguided. Their actions always came from fear, delusion, and misunderstanding. Now in both kingdoms, the circumstances of life were governed by the spirit of the rulers, and what manifested was really a reflection of their habits of a lifetime or many lifetimes. And so it is with us that if it's our habit to look and out of fear see how another might attack us or hurt us or has their own agenda, then we will fix on that. That will be the screen that will filter our experience of that other being. If, on the other hand, we're feeling more freed up, we're not feeling so defensive or self-protective, we can look and see the suffering of another and the goodness of another. This is this sense of how we plant the seeds of the future by where we are now is basic to the Dhammapada. This is the Buddha's basic teachings and they go like this. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world, speak or act with an impure mind and troubles will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world, speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakably. Thich Nhat Hanh asks a very wonderful question, and it's, do our daily lives have nothing to do with our government, our society? What's happening right now politically? If we look closely, we can see how all of our thoughts and our behaviors really feed into the violence and the ignorance in our culture. We see it particularly with judgment. It's so easy to create distances, self and other, 
Sometimes they don't jump out at us because it's not like we're really in some way directly abusing another with our thoughts. Rather, it's a very slight sense of this is me, this is my life, this is my concern, and that being is over there. So our path is to cultivate this awareness that includes, that includes and is healing and is kind. And we know that when we're feeling good, when we're feeling free, when we're feeling open, that's our natural way of expressing ourselves with kindness, with generosity. And we also know we get contracted and behave in ways that are hurtful, each of us. Probably the most compelling question that people ask at the end of a retreat, after there's been some days of really settling into this sense of of wakefulness and and wanting to carry it into life is, is how to manifest our kindness, how to manifest wise speech and wise action given the intensity of the world, given that other people aren't going to behave so wisely. How do we stay true to that? Now, every spiritual tradition, everyone I know, offers guidelines on how to do this. I was at a uh, Dzogchen retreat, a Tibetan retreat, um, at the end of the summer, and most of the teachings that we receive are about how to discover the freedom of being, the wakefulness of our innate nature, But right in the middle of the retreat, when we'd finally quieted down a bit, Sokni Rinpoche quoted the Tibetan scriptures, and he said, as great and vast as our awareness is, as high as all the heavens, so our behavior can be as fine as the finest powder. There's no difference. This waking up is naturally expressed through wise behavior, wise action. So tonight I'd like to kind of go through the training precepts the Buddha offered which can guide us in how to to act mindfully and wakefully in our day. And just to say that while it's our nature, if we're wakeful, it's our nature to speak wisely, to be helpful, to be generous, to be kind, It's also a beautiful and powerful practice to intentionally remember guidelines that bring us back to our nature. It's kind of circular, if you know what I mean. So we begin with a little reflection, if you will, to close your eyes. And take a moment first to reflect on recently what felt like in some way an act of kindness. It could be a thought or a deed from you that in some way you offer to another a kind thought or a kind action. And if nothing comes to mind, you can do it right now. Think of someone you care about and send a kind thought. And as
as you reflect on extending kindness, just notice your sense of being, of who you are, what you feel like, how it is to be offering kindness. Who are you right now? Taking a deep breath, exhaling, and then bringing to mind an act or a thought that did not feel kind, that in some way was judgmental or distancing, hurtful. If it's difficult considering a person that is troublesome for you, and sensing your judgment. It doesn't have to go into deep hatred or rage, but just unkindness, separation. Sense your motivation when you're unkind. What your sense of being is like, who you are in this particular circumstance. And then again, taking a deep breath and coming back. Practicing the training precepts of living mindfully and kindly isn't about practicing being perfect. It's mostly becoming mindful of how we're moving through things. And when we're really honest with ourselves, because we all are kind at times and we're all judgmental at times, we notice some basic truths. We notice that there's this conditioning in us to be afraid, this conditioning to want something, and out of that conditioning we can act in an unwise way. We all do it. We've all hurt ourselves and hurt other people because of our wanting and fearing. So that's a universal. We all feel shame and deficiency when that happens and we're trying to learn to heal around that. So that's one piece that we become aware of around conduct. The other is that it is our capacity and it's a very natural capacity to feel an open-heartedness and to extend ourselves kindly. And it comes from a very fundamentally wakeful awareness. When we're awake, when we're open, that's how we naturally are. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh equated this awareness, this natural openness with nonviolence, ahimsa, some of you might know that word, non-harming, that when we're awake, we sense connectedness, we're naturally caring, we naturally want to protect and give to life. Melotes, a writer, writes, not that I wanted to be a god or a hero, just to change into a tree, grow for ages, not hurt anyone, offer refuge, offer shade. It's out of this understanding of connectedness 
that we have that aspiration to not harm, rather to revere life, to care about life. It's called bodhicitta, this reverence for life. So the Buddha offered these training precepts that are grounded in this wise understanding, grounded in our sense of connectedness. And he considered this the minimum commitment for us as we open and awaken these guidelines. And I'm just going to read them to you. You can just reflect on them and meditate on them, and then we'll close the evening uh, with a taking of the precepts in a more ritual way. One, I undertake the training precept of refraining from killing and harming living beings. Two, I undertake the training precept of refraining from stealing and taking that which is not mine. Three, I undertake the training precept of refraining from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Four, I undertake the training precept of refraining from false speech, harmful speech, gossip, and slander. Five, I undertake the training precept of refraining from the misuse of intoxicants such as alcohol or drugs that cause carelessness or loss of awareness. In the language of the classic scriptures, things are framed negatively. Thou shalt not, have you noticed? But these are not passive guidelines. Their essence actually is quite active. And they are a way of expanding our circle of understanding and compassion to include all of life. Rilke writes, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not ever complete the last one, but I give myself to it. So let's look at how we can give ourselves to living wakefully and the real essence of these precepts. The first, non-killing, is not passive. It expresses a basic reverence for life, a sense of protectiveness and caring that extends to all sentient beings, to all of life. And it arises from the sense that we're not separate. The uh, New Yorker from a number of years ago now that I love this cartoon with the image of uh, these two deer and they're talking and off at a distance you see these hunters and the deers are saying, I wish they would thin their own goddamn herds, you know. (laughs) To not create other, to really sense the life that's in all beings, the preciousness of life. This was in Be Here Now, Ram Dass's Bible from the 60s. There's a Sikh story about a holy man who gave two men each a chicken. He said, go kill them where no one can see. One guy went behind the fence and killed the chicken. The other guy walked around for two days and came back with the chicken. The holy man said, you didn't kill the chicken? The guy said, well, everywhere I go, the chicken sees. So 
So you understand that this expanding of, un- of awareness is to recognize the preciousness, the consciousness, the aliveness of beings in all forms. Probably the most direct way that we bridge this sense of self and other is really by allowing ourselves to see suffering. I think that's what brings us together when we recognize it, when we can really look. Last spring I went to the Holocaust Museum here in DC and it was my first time and I don't know why it was my first time but anyway um, it was of course very very powerful the presentation was beautiful and, and deeply moving but equally to the presentation at the museum was this sense of the crowd of people I happened to be moving through with, which were people really from all walks. It was, you know, it was really quite a mix. And just to share the intimacy of bearing witness together, to see other beings also with tears and and being moved so much, um, was very, very powerful. And there is an intimacy to that. It brings us together when we're really willing to look and to see. And it's so easy to go into our own bubble and think we're the only one that's hurting or we're the only one struggling with something or feeling pain or pleasure or anything and forgetting that we belong. One of the most powerful messages as part of the Holocaust um, presentation was, a, was written by a German pastor named Martin Neimoller and it went like this. First they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. So there's this wisdom that comes when we recognize belonging, that we're all vulnerable, each one of us. When you can really look and see that we share that. And this opens the circle of of who we belong with. Last year I read this very uh, amazing article about a white supremacist who was the former chief propagandist for a racist group called Aryan Nations. And the title of the article was Recovery from Hate. And it described how in his early years uh, his mother abandoned him, his stepmother abused him. Then he read about Hitler and in his reading about the black sheep who rose to world power, the story of Hitler. And he found his way into this group. He described, I walked past the whites only sign on the gate and I knew I was home you know, because this group is anti-black, anti-Semitic, anti-U.S. government, anti as many things as you can line up to be against. So here's the turning point for him, that this high officer he was working with let him know that when they came to power, this group came to power, his then four-year-old son would be euthanized because he had a cleft palate. It woke him up. His own son was different too. They were going to kill his son for a genetic defect. So he realized how could he advocate killing anybody for anything about them. It turned him around 180 degrees 
because his own vulnerability was touched. And now he lectures passionately around the country about bigotry. So it's when we face our own vulnerability in an honest way and our own conditioning, do we open the circle? Can we begin to stop this cycle of violence? The first Thich Nhat Hanh retreat I went to um, was I went because I, in those days, had heard of Thich Nhat Hanh as kind of representing a teacher, a spiritual teacher, that was really living it in terms of engaged and active in the world. And I'd heard so much about how um, he had faced so much suffering in his own country and yet not created an enemy, not, not accused or pointed fingers. So I went to this retreat and kind of in the middle, Sister Thong, who teaches with him, told a story about one of their early war experiences. And in this story, uh, the way it went was that this band of Buddhist monks, and they were and nuns, and they were 18, 19, 20, 21, they were young, went around and they'd go to places where there had been a lot of violence and there was a lot of suffering and they'd set up kitchens and schools for the children and so on. And the U.S. mistrusted them, thinking they were Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong mistrusted them, thinking that they were um, allied with the West. So they had a lot of enemies. And one night their encampment was bombed. And there were 30, 40 of them, and only a few of them survived. Almost all of them got wiped out. And uh, a few days later, the survivors were asked to make a statement. And in the statement that the spokesperson made, um, they basically said, whoever did this is forgiven because this violence was done out of ignorance. It's easy to forgive conceptually, do you know what I mean? But when you're, you've just been somewhere where all your dear ones have been killed, um, it takes an enormous wisdom and greatness of heart, which really is the foundation or grounds of a virtuous life. To see clearly that when people do horrible things, they're doing it because they feel horrible inside or they're completely confused and deluded. So this first precept, which is really the grounds of all the precepts, is non-violence, non-harming, which is really to say this deep reverence for life, the sense that we belong together and we're here to support and nourish and protect life. The second precept, refraining from stealing, is really an extension of this. Non-stealing can become the basis for a wise ecology it becomes a basis for realizing that this earth is a place of limited resources, it's fragile, and that it's our, our role here to discover wise ways to honor and protect and share the blessings of this earth. And for many this means just becoming more simple in the way we live. You know, we're, we're great consumers. We have a disproportionate share of it going on here compared to the rest of the world. So 
So living more simply, being mindful of consuming, and then a natural generosity to balance, to help, to give to where there is um, a lack of, of privilege, where people are lacking. It's like a fountain that we sense our fullness and there's a natural giving out. And spiritual life has been likened to this garden where every seed we plant affects the future and this vibration or attitude of giving, of generosity, of offering is the most incredible nourishing environment for the blossoming of spirit. Generosity, giving, not stealing. There's a very interesting experiment that was run a few years ago and it took place outside of a psychiatric hospital what happened was there was a toll booth and it was one of those toll booths that didn't have a person in it so you kind of threw in your quarter and went on and some people did it and some people didn't and so one of the residents at the psychiatric hospital put a video camera up to see who was throwing the quarters and who wasn't and um, did it for months without anyone knowing and the primary people that used this were um, professionals in the hospital So after collecting data for, oh gosh, three, four months, they correlated the data of who was paying their quarter um, with the healing rate of clients seeing those particular (laughs) professionals. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Guess what? (laughs) There was a dramatic, statistically significant correlation between those psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatric nurses that were paying their quarters and the healing rate. And it makes sense. This is karma. We can't go through our day raping and plundering and stealing and lying and then come here and sit and experience bliss and light and peace and love. It just doesn't happen if our habit is to think thoughts of generosity and kindness, wishing others well, sensing a feeling of us, not me and them, then it comes back to us. Our lives unfold in a way where there's a lot more communion, connectedness, ease, happiness. If instead we go around with thoughts that are judging and creating distance, We create more fear in our body and it perpetuates the cycle of violence. This is karma. So these precepts, which are considered moral precepts, aren't to say good, bad, good, evil, right, wrong, as much as it's an expression of the freedom of our spirit that we give, that we don't steal, that we love, that we don't hurt. And by paying attention to these guidelines, it brings us back to our nature. Two brothers worked hard together on the family farm. One was married and had a large family. The other was single. At the day's end, the brothers shared everything equally, produce and profit. Then one day, the single brother said to himself, It's not right that we should share equally the produce and the profit. I'm alone and my needs are simple. So each night he took a sack of grain from his bin and crept across the field between their houses, dumping it into his brother's bin. Meanwhile, the married brother said to himself, 
It's not right that we should share the produce and the profit equally. After all, I'm married and I have my wife and children to look after me in the years to come. My brother has no one and no one to take care of his future. So each night he took a sack of grain and dumped it into his single brother's bin. <laughs> Most, both men were puzzled for years because their supply of grain never dwindled. Then, one dark night, the two brothers bumped into each other. <laughs> Slowly it dawned on them what was happening. They dropped their sacks and embraced one another. So the first precept, non-harming. The second, not to steal, rather generosity of spirit. And the third, to not cause harm through sexual misconduct. And like the others, there's a huge amount of grasping and shame and objectifying others and all sorts of unwise activity for most everyone. If I asked here, who here has acted at some point foolishly or hurtfully? in some way ignorantly, in terms of sexual behavior, how many hands, and I'm not asking, <laughs> would, go, would go up, and you know. <laughs> so this is a primo area that we all get confused and stumble around in, and also a primo area for humor, because we all carry so much, we need to lighten our load on this one for some. Many of you know this, uh, these are some answers uh, given on a Bible is. Uh, here's one of them. The seventh commandment is, thou shalt not admit adultery. <laughs> Another one. The Jews had trouble throughout their history with unsympathetic genitals. <laughs> A Christian should have only one wife. This is called monotony. <laughs> So as a culture, we see great amount of play, of jokes, and of suffering around sexuality. You can see it with the amount of pornography, with the rapes, with the child abuse, which may not be increasing, but at least we're knowing about it more. We see it in the pain of sexual addiction, the current Clinton scandal. How else can we look at it, you know? It's addiction when it causes so much pain. And then we see the hypocritical reaction of all those others who have also been dishonest but need to point a finger. Those others, and we know it, most people in power abuse power. And a big way to abuse power is sexually. How many have done that and are pointing fingers? We know that. Thich Nhat Hanh says it so beautifully in that poem, Call Me By My True Name. You know that, some of you? If you don't, it's one to read. It's um, in uh, The Miracle of Mindfulness. Call Me By My True Names is a poem about how each one of us has all the potential behaviors in us, the murderer and the rapist, the healer, the saint. We have it all in us. And part of our freedom is coming to recognize that, that under certain conditions we would do just the stuff that we most condemn other people for doing. So, this precept's not like a draconian moral code. 
it's really a reminder that can open us to a natural expression of our heart that when we are committed to non-harming through sexuality it opens us up to the potential for enormous and genuine intimacy, joy, happiness. This is a story by Gerald Brennan. One day she told me the story of her early life, her first love affair, and it took place when she was around 18, a true love affair. The young man was a year or two older, and the procedure they adopted was to take off their clothes and quite naked climb two adjacent poplar trees. When they were as high as they could get, they would make them sway till their branches touched. They themselves never did. So that's not a story to say don't touch but that there's an enormous amount of creativity and beauty when we act out of love and not out of ignorance and greed. The fourth precept, refraining from false or harmful speech. So this is a huge one because we speak all the time and it's one of the main ways that karmically we either perpetuate our sense of small self can discover some real freedom. And the Buddha gave two main guidelines, that to speak what is true and to speak what is helpful. Now the problem is, it takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of discrimination to know that. So most of the time, as we bring mindfulness through our day, it's looking through that lens of truth and helpfulness. Sometimes out of care, we'll withhold the painful truth. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes a person is not able or ready to digest it. Sometimes in the name of truth, we'll say what's hurtful. Sometimes it's helpful. People can handle it and it clears the air. Other times, our intention is just to put someone down, make them feel bad, get back, and what do we get? It's just another cycle of blame and violence. So there's a real call when it comes to wise speech to take our time and to pay attention, to slow down, to sometimes not speak so much, and other times to speak what we haven't been able to speak. In one of the classic stories, Joseph Goldstein, who let right speech or wise speech be a main focus of his practice for a while, decided that he wasn't going to speak about anybody that wasn't there. Not only not say bad things about people, but just not speak about people when they weren't there. And he found that about 95% of his speech was eliminated, you know? So how to, in a day-to-day way, pay attention and be skillful? My own guidelines that work for me in trying to discriminate what's skillful or not in speaking is to really check my intention. When it's at all dicey, to say, okay, what am I really trying to get from this or do here? Um, if we're disclosing a personal truth in some way, like that has to do with an aversion to another person, because that's a situation that ha- happens a lot, 
what we want to say, which is honest, is you're driving me crazy, I can't stand you, I don't like the way you look, smell, act, think, you know. If that's there, what's going on? What's our intention? And as I mentioned before, it's usually layered. Now one layer is usually anger and defensiveness and wanting to strike out or wanting another to protect our own vulnerability. If we really stay with our heart, we can find the deepest aspiration, which is we want connectedness. We want to name truth so that there's more space, more understanding, more freedom. If we speak and we're connected with that deepest intention, then the outcome is much more possible to be healing and freedom. But if we don't take the time and we speak and there's those other layers activated with a lot of stickiness and identification, all we do is continue the reactivity. There is so much power to pausing and feeling our hearts and speaking from our hearts. Mother Teresa says, kind words can be short and easy to speak, but their echoes are truly endless. It doesn't take much. This area is so big, so important, that next week's whole time together will be based on looking and investigating the ins and outs more of what the Buddha meant by wise speech, and Louisa will be leading that. Um, What many people have found is that just taking any one of these precepts and emphasizing it and exploring it, and there are ways to do it, which we'll be talking about, can open up the whole Dharma. That if you never did anything else but spend the next years just trying to bring mindfulness and heartfulness to your speech, your entire life would be dramatically transformed. It's true. It's the microcosm and macrocosm. It's in everything. So speaking in a way that doesn't create harm. Okay, the last training precept is to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Again, the intention under all substance abuse, as with all other kinds of harming, is to, in some way, relieve pain and have more pleasure. It's out of our wanting and fearing. But sadly, this is the root for one of the hugest areas of human suffering we know, causing violence to ourselves and to others, family, society. So mindfulness to all levels of addictive abuse. And that for us it means there's the mild, moderate ones we know about and the more blatant ones, can really be radical. This too, if we start paying attention to where we numb ourselves, where we escape, where we try to um, leave what's true, if we start paying attention to it, we open up to the place where there's the most freedom, the place we're most running from, is where we can learn the most. We can discover who we are in those moments. So these are the precepts, the five ones that are considered the minimum commitment. Imagine what the monks do in Theravadan countries where they have hundreds and hundreds of precepts. It's a complicated life. This is Jack Kornfield. At first, precepts are a practice. Then they become a necessity and finally, they become a joy. 
Now why is this? Why do they become a joy? At first, especially if we have a sense of ourselves as not okay, they can be tinged with a moralistic right-wrong. As we open, as we awaken, they become a joyful expression of who we already are. And this is called shining virtue. It's natural. It's who we are to walk on this earth and care and extend our care. It's also natural that we fall asleep, that we do this in a really imperfect way, that each of us stumbles and that every day in some way can be very subtle, but in some way we do not speak skillfully or act skillfully. There's a Japanese proverb, even monkeys, they say, fall out of trees. (laughs) It's reassuring, isn't it? (laughs) So our practice when we fall out of the tree of morality, to be forgiving, to bring a wise response, which is compassion, and also to know that we'll find a greater sense of freedom if our intention is to recommit to kindness, to friendliness towards life. Rumi writes, Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come, even if you have broken your vow a hundred times, come, come again, come. Now, traditionally, the precepts are recited and recited out loud as a way of remembering our intention. And because it can be quite a beautiful ritual, we'll do that together tonight. But I'd like to invite you first just to stretch your legs for a moment, because we've been sitting a while, and then come sit in a comfortable way. Take a moment as you become still in your posture to let yourself arrive fully, to feel the life of the moment, to relax. Relax the mind, relax the heart. We begin with the traditional taking of refuge, which is our deepest aspiration. So meditating silently, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in this Buddha nature, this awakening heart-mind within all beings. I take refuge in the Buddha. reflecting on this refuge in our awakening nature. I take refuge in the Dharma, in the path, 
in the truths that awaken me. I take refuge in the Dharma, in these precious practices and teachings which free this heart and mind. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha, the community of beings, the community of all beings, taking refuge in the sense of belonging and relatedness in the web of life. I take refuge in the Sangha. Now I'll say them and then you can say them out loud after me. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And now bringing our attention to the training precepts. The first. I undertake the training precept of refraining from killing and harming living beings. This is the precept of reverence for life. Together, I undertake the training precept of refraining from killing and harming living beings. And in silence now, to reflect on the meaning of that to you. Reverence for life. The second precept, I undertake the training precept of refraining from stealing and taking that which is not mine. In this precept, it's care for this world, generosity and care. We'll say this together now. I undertake the training precept of refraining from stealing and taking that which is not mine reflecting on what this means to you. The third precept, I undertake the training precept of refraining from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Conscious sexuality, we'll say it together now. I undertake the training precept of refraining from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Reflecting on how this can be meaningful to you.
the fourth precept. I undertake the training precept of refraining from false speech, harmful speech, gossip, and slander. Speech from the heart. Truth, helpful, speech from the heart. And we'll say this together now. I undertake the training precept of refraining from false speech, harmful speech, gossip, and slander. Reflecting again on how you can bring your speech in direct expression of your heart. Congruent, honest, caring, real. And then the last precept. I undertake the training precept of refraining from the misuse of intoxicants such as alcohol or drugs that cause carelessness or loss of awareness. Refraining from abusing that which will hurt us and others. We'll just use the first part of this together now. I undertake the training precept of refraining from the misuse of intoxicants. Taking a few moments now in silence to bring this quality of reverence for life to whatever arises. Being like that tree, non-harming, non-harming and offering shelter and care to the appearances that arise in awareness. I live my life in widening circles 
that reach out across the world. I may not ever complete the last one, but I give myself to it. Thank you for your attention tonight. Um, I have left out on the table over there a copy of the precepts as well as, if you're interested, different for each one ways that you can kind of focus and practice that one for the week. Um, For example, refraining from killing, reverence for life. Undertake for one week to purposely bring no harm in thought, word, or deed to any living creature particularly become aware of any living beings in your world whom you ignore, people, animals, even plants, and cultivate a sense of care and reverence for them too. Uh, This is part of A Path with Heart, is uh, written by Jack Kornfield, and if you have the book, uh, it's in there. (laughs) I don't remember the page. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.